Well, good morning. It's such a privilege and a pleasure to be with you this morning. My name is Eric Cower, and I am on the pastoral staff of Faith Bible Church in Evansville, Indiana. And my wife, Jody, and I are, are certainly thrilled to be able to be with you this morning and to have the privilege to open God's Word with you this morning. If you've got your Bible, and I certainly hope that you do, let me encourage you to be turning to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. This morning, we're going to look at two verses, those two verses being verse 28 and verse 29. And I'll go ahead and tell you, we'll probably spend two-thirds of our time this morning in verse 28. And we'll conclude our final point this morning looking at verse 29. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. While you're turning there, let me pray for us and ask God to bless our time in His Word this morning. Father, we are so grateful this morning that you are high and exalted, that you are sovereign and in control of all things, that you sit on the throne of heaven and all things beckon to your call and are at your command. Lord, thank you for creating us. Thank you for creating us in your image, for giving us your spirit, for sending your son, for crushing him on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago to bear sin's weight and awful penalty. Lord, what a magnificent Savior we have. While we were fast bound in sin, you crushed your Son for us. Lord, we pray this morning as we turn our attention to your Word that you would refresh us, that you would feed us your sheep, that you would nourish us uh, by your Word. Lord, I pray that you uh, would build and establish your church. Lord, we thank you that you're a self-revealing God, and as we open the pages of your Word, we see you as we see the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ, and all of the promises that are ours because of his great and victorious work on our behalf. Lord, we pray for this time this morning. We pray that you would be honored and glorified in our lives. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 8.28, our text for this morning, is perhaps one of the most treasured promises in all of God's Word. These two verses have undoubtedly given believers security and encouragement in the midst of circumstances that if those circumstances were viewed through finite or through temporary lenses, might seem otherwise hopeless and helpless. You know, I think if we're honest, if we all just in the, the quiet of our own souls were honest for a moment, we struggle at times to trust God. Even as redeemed, regenerate believers called by the Lord Jesus Christ, we struggle at times to trust God, to trust that He's really in control, to trust that He's really sovereign, to trust that all things are in His hands. We struggle at times. It seems rather easy to believe that God is in control when the sea is calm, but what about when the waves and the, and the, the winds begin to kick up? The Bible's clear about the fact that not only is God in control, but that He's working all things together for the good of those who love Him. Not only is He in control, not only is He sovereign, but He's working all things, every circumstance, every detail, every moment, for the good of those who love Him. God has a great purpose for your life, and that purpose, as we'll learn this morning from our text, is that you and I be growing in Christ-likeness, which is God's greatest glory and our greatest good. God does everything He does. Everything He does, He does for His glory primarily and secondarily for the good of those who love Him, for His children. Let's turn our attention this morning to our text. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pins these words in Romans 8, 28 and 29. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become, to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. Well, I just want to walk through this text this morning, really kind of phrase by phrase. If you're taking notes this morning, the first a point that I want you to take note of on your outline is this. God is sovereignly in control of every facet of your life. God is sovereignly in control of every facet of your life. Look at the text here. 
And we know that God causes. I just want to pause right there and look at that first phrase for a moment. And we know that God causes. Let me ask you this question. You believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that God causes all things? I love the fact that over and over and over again in the New Testament, we are confronted with the inescapable reality and truth that we as believers are called to believe and to have confidence in God's sovereign control over all things and over all things in our life. That word sovereignty means that God is in control of all things everywhere and at all times, and He directs all things in complete alignment with His predetermined will. That's a mouthful, and that is a theologically jam-packed statement. Sovereignty means that God is in control of all things everywhere, not just here this moment, but almost 7 billion people on the face of the planet today. God is in control, sovereignly in control of all things everywhere, and He directs all things in complete alignment with His predetermined will. Our surety in the sovereignty of God's control is, is based in something, though. Our surety in the sovereignty of God is based in God's very own character, in God's immutable, unchanging character. That's what it is that gives us rock-solid confidence in God's sovereignty. The fact that God's nature, His character, and His attributes are unchanging. Jesus is the same today as He was yesterday, and He'll be the same tomorrow. That's what gives us rock-solid confidence as believers, that God is working all things to the good of those who love Him, is that His nature, character, and attributes are unchanging. His immutable, unchanging character. This means that we can have complete confidence that there are no accidents. Life is not a random set of events. We're not left to luck, and we're certainly not left to chance. There's a loving master and a master plan working behind all of life's circumstances. You know, as a visitor this morning, I, I have no idea as I look out what's, what's going on in your lives. But I do know this. I know that every single one of us live in a Genesis 3 fallen world. And we all struggle with the effects of sin. We all struggle living in a fallen world. We all have circumstances, all be they sovereignly, divinely appointed. God's working through them. But we all have difficult, challenging circumstances in our lives. But life isn't a random set of events. We're not left to luck. There's a loving master and a loving plan behind all of life's circumstances. Nothing happens that's outside of God's knowledge. Nothing happens that's outside of God's control. And nothing happens that's outside of God's time sequence for your life. you believe that? I hope you do. We can know without a doubt that every circumstance that comes into our life was sovereignly ordained by an omniscient, omnipotent, gracious God who loves us and cares for us beyond our wildest imagination. It's important that the word causes right there, and we know that God causes. That word causes, some translations, some versions translate it, God works, and we know that God works. Same, same Greek, original word there, but that word causes, it's in the present active tense. And you say, well, goodness gracious, what in the world does that mean? What does it mean that that word on the screen there, causes, is in the present active tense? Well, let me tell you what that means simply. It means this. It means that God's working in our lives is an ongoing activity. Meaning he didn't just cause one time. He didn't just work at one time, and then he's not causing or not working anymore. Our gracious Heavenly Father is causing continually, is working continually, all things for the good of those who love him. Working in a special way to bring about good from every circumstance for those who are his own. God's not only sovereignly in control of the big picture of your life, saving you and getting you to glory, but He is in control of all of the moments. Not just the big picture, but every single moment along the way. I love that. Write this down if you're taking notes and just stew over it later. When life seems most out of control, it could never be more in control. When life seems most out of control, it could never be more in control. 
God's refining us. He's growing us. He's sanctifying us. He's chiseling away that which doesn't reflect his glory. He's preparing you for the day that you'll stand before him without spot or wrinkle or any such defect. And if that doesn't get us excited, if the thought of that doesn't get us excited, what God is preparing us for by the circumstances of today, the only thing that will get us excited for that is a new heart. Right? What God is doing in your life today, what God was doing in your life yesterday, what God will be doing in your life tomorrow is working such a set of circumstances as will at the end conform you more and more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is God's greatest glory, and that is your greatest good. Think about this for a moment. Let me illustrate it. Not many of us go to a tailor to have clothes made today. Not many of us go have suits made at a tailor. But there was a time uh, in our world in which that was commonplace. And a tailor would take needle and thread, fine, uh, fine instruments, and and create a fine garment, but he would stitch together every single stitch with great precision and great care. And, and maybe if you looked at the beginning of what that tailor was doing, you would have a hard time seeing the completed suit. But at the end, after every stitch was made, after every loose end was snipped, what was left hanging on the, on the hanger at the end was a beautiful garment. Likewise, God, the master tailor, of the universe, is sovereignly orchestrating a set of divine circumstances for your life. Some seem sweeter, some seem more sorrowful. We'll talk about those in a moment. But the divine tailor is stitching together like no one else could a set of circumstances that will, in the end, result in your growth and resemblance to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing. That's what he's up to. It's what he was up to yesterday. It's what he's up to today. And that's what he's going to be up to tomorrow in all the circumstances in your life. God is sovereignly in control of every facet of your life. Number two, if you're taking notes, I want you to take note of this. God's purposes for trials in the life of a believer are always good. That's that second phrase, right? And we know that God causes. He's continually causing. Causing what? All things to work together for good. Let me ask you this question. What does all things mean? What does all things mean? The challenging one. All things means all things. That's what it means in the original language. All things means all things. That means all things good and all things bad, all things bright and all things dark, all things sweet and all things bitter, all things easy and all things hard, all things happy and all things sad, in prosperity and in poverty, in health and in sickness, in calm and in storm, in comfort and in suffering, in life and in death. God uses everything for the good of those who love him. All means all things. What does God use? God uses the sweet things. Write that down if you're taking notes. God uses all the sweet things in your life for your good. A loving spouse, wonderful children, a job that provides for your family, friendships, the church, the local church, God's word, good health, spiritual influence, fruitful ministries, answered prayers. And we could go on and on and on and on. God uses all of the sweet things in your life for your good. Again, for your good has to be defined as for your growth in Christ's likeness, God uses all those things for your good. You see, we don't, we're, we're not challenged to believe that God uses the sweet things in our lives for our good. We're challenged, or where the rubber meets the road, is what about those sorrowful things? What about those sorrowful circumstances, which some of you may be walking through this morning? God uses not only the sweet things in your life for your good, but secondly, or be on your outline there, God uses all the sorrowful things in your life for your good. What about the loss of a child or a spouse? What about sickness or disease? What about the word terminal? What about the loss of a job? What about persecution for bearing the name Jesus Christ? What about broken friendships? What about a lost and rebellious child? What about unmet expectations? Again, the list could go on and on and on. But the question is, is God limited in some way from using those sorrowful circumstances for your good? Again, we don't argue that God uses the sweet things 
the sweet circumstances in our life are good, but where the rubber meets the road is when we start talking about those sorrowful circumstances. Is God really still sovereignly in control then? Is he really still sitting on the throne then? Is he really in control not only of the big picture then, but also of the moments then? Absolutely so. He is. God uses each and every circumstance, even the difficult ones, for his glory and our good. You know, an old Puritan once said this. He said, the eye that's washed with tears oftentimes sees the best. The eye that's washed with tears oftentimes sees the best. And a sickbed often teaches more than a sermon. Trying times, difficult circumstances are growing times. Growing times. Third, or C there on your outline, God even uses the sin in your life for your good. This takes some qualification here, but it's true, and I want you to understand it from God's Word. God, in His unfathomable wisdom, even uses our sin, which is the antithesis of good, to bring about blessing in our lives. Now, here's the qualification. As incredible as this truth is, we must remember that we are never, capital N-E-V-E-R, never encouraged in Scripture to sin for the sake of the good that might come about as a result of it. We're never encouraged to sin for the good that God will bring about as a result of it. As a matter of fact, just two chapters back in Romans chapter 6, Paul strongly exhorts us as believers. He says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means, or may it never be so? We're never encouraged to sin for the good that God will bring about. Matter of fact, he goes on and he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Well, then how then is this true? How does God use our sin ultimately for our good and blessing? Briefly, I think there are three ways, and this is not an exhaustive list, but let me Let me share a couple of these ways, a few of these ways with you. I I think God uses our sin for our good in this way first. When the Holy Spirit convicts our hearts of sin, when we sin, and the Spirit convicts our heart of sin, and we respond in humble repentance, we're reminded once again of the sinfulness of sin. In other words, we're reminded again, or we grow in an understanding of the heinous nature of our sin. And that's a good thing, right? to grow in a deeper understanding of how heinous our sin really is, that's a good thing. Now, we're not encouraged to sin, that God might use it that way, but God in his unfathomable wisdom even uses our sin for our good. God also disciplines us as sons, and that produces holiness and Christ-like character in our lives. God disciplines us just like we as earthly fathers and mothers discipline our children for their good. That's a good thing. Third, God also uses our sin to remind us how big his grace and forgiveness are. Paul reminds us in Romans 5, chapter, or verse 20, he says, where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. And so God even uses our sin to teach us something about the magnanimous nature of his grace and his forgiveness. I love Psalm 130. The psalmist writes this. He says, If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? That's a rhetorical question, and they appear all throughout Scripture. If you, O Lord, kept a record, kept a record of sin, who could stand? No answer. Why? Because it's emphatically implied. No one could stand. But the psalmist goes on and he says, But with you, there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. And so God, again, in his unfathomable wisdom, even uses our sin, the antithesis of good, to bring about good in our lives. He uses the sweet things, the sweet circumstances, the sorrowful circumstances, and he even uses our sin. Well, let me say this. Good. The fact that God causes all things to work together for good, that word there, good, it implies purpose. Would you agree? The fact that God uses all things for the good of those who love him, that word good implies that there are, there's purpose in what God is doing. We can rest assured that in each trial that God providentially allows to come to pass in our lives, those trials come with great purpose. James tells us not only how we should respond to God-ordained trials in our lives, but he also tells us what their purpose is. Keep your finger there in Romans chapter 8 for a minute, and why don't you turn over in your Bibles? I want you to see this. James chapter 1. 
verses 2 through 4. James 1, 2 through 4. And again, what James is telling us is he's telling us not only how we should respond to the trials in our lives, but he's also telling us what those trials' purpose are, or what the purpose is for those trials. This is a familiar text probably to many of you. James writes this, beginning in verse 2, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That's how we're to respond. We don't always respond that way, though, do we? I certainly don't. Still struggle with remaining and dwelling sin. New heart, but we still live in a sinful flesh. We don't always respond with great joy to trials and difficult, challenging circumstances in our lives. But that's how we're to respond. That's the biblical response. Here's the purpose for trials. He says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. We're to respond with joy, but the purpose is, is that God would develop steadfastness in us. That word steadfastness, it's an interesting word. Uh, if some of you have ever potentially worked with, with metal, the way that we temper steel is that we get it hot. And when we get steel hot, it tempers and it becomes stronger. It becomes more steadfast. Well, likewise, sometimes God turns the heat up on our lives. Sometimes God turns the pressure up on our lives with sovereignly ordained circumstances that we sometimes think are less than desirable, but God is doing it for great purpose. And that great purpose is that you would be more steadfast, that you would be tempered, in a sense. Stronger. That you would bear more resemblance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Every single circumstance. I just want to flood your mind with this truth. Every single circumstance in your life, God is using like a divine tailor that you would bear more resemblance to the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, the rubber's going to meet the road. We're all sitting in here. It's climate-controlled. It's nice. The seats are relatively comfortable. But we're going to walk down these aisles in a little while. We're going to get in our cars, and the day is going to come at us. And we don't know what the day will bring. But we can know this. We can know the one, that the, the, the one who is in control of the day and that he's divinely orchestrating a set of circumstances that would cause me to bear more resemblance to the Lord Jesus Christ, that I would be steadfast. I love this. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, the Christian does not know everything, but he does know one thing. Look at him in trouble when everything is apparently at odds against him, when he is so perplexed that he does not know what he ought to pray for. He is confused and he does not always understand. Can you relate? I can Yet even at that very point, he can say, I do not know which way to go or turn. I do not understand why these things are happening. And I do not know exactly what to ask for at this moment. But I do know this in spite of all my ignorance, that everything that is happening to me is working together for my good. Even in all of my being perplexed, even in all of my lack of understanding, still yet one thing I do know. God is using every circumstance for my good. Well, in what specific ways does God use our trials for good? Let me, let me bring a little bit of application to this theological truth. And you just got a space there in the middle of your outline if you're taking notes this morning. And I've got 10 points on my uh, notes this morning, and I cut about seven or eight of them out for the sake of time and for attention, but I just want to clip off some, some reasons. Again, this is not an exhaustive list, but you ask, well, what is God, in the, in the trial that I'm facing this morning, sitting in here, what is God doing? I know he's working good, but what exactly does that mean specifically? Well, let me give you a few specific things that that could potentially mean. Number one, God uses trials to help us learn to trust his wise providence and goodness in our lives. God uses trials to help us learn to trust, there's the key word, to trust his wise providence and goodness in our lives. God always knows what is best for you, and he always does what is best with you. God always knows what is best for you, and he always does what is best with you. And he wants us to trust him. 
to trust him. God uses trials to help us learn to trust his wise providence and goodness in our lives. Secondly, God uses trials to expose our sinful hearts and to point us to his grace. When trials come into my life, when less than desirable circumstances come into my life, one of the things that God is wanting to do is he's wanting to expose my sinful heart that I might grow in Christ-likeness. Jeremiah 17, 9, a familiar text to us, says that our hearts are deceitful above all things and they're desperately or wickedly sick. Who can understand them, Jeremiah says. Oftentimes, God uses trials in our lives to help us see that sin that resides in the depths of our hearts. I love what the 17th century Puritan Thomas Watson wisely said, speaking about God using trials to expose our sinful hearts. He said this, he said, affliction, which is the word he uses for trials. Affliction teaches us what sin is. In the word preached, we hear what a dreadful thing sin is. It's both defiling and damning, but we, we fear it no more than a painted lion. Therefore, God lets loose affliction, and then we feel the bitter fruit of our sin. We see that corruption in our hearts in time of affliction that we would not believe was otherwise there. Here he gives an illustration. He says, water in a glass looks clear. But set that water on fire, and scum begins to boil up. In prosperity, a man seems to be humble and thankful. The water looks clear. But set that man a little on the fire of affliction, and the scum boils up. Much impatience and unbelief appear. Oh, says a Christian, I never thought I had such a bad heart as I now see I have. I never thought my corruptions to be so strong and my graces to be so weak. You see, God uses affliction. God uses challenging, difficult circumstances and trials to reveal our sinful hearts and to point us to his matchless grace. Third, God uses our trials to teach us to pray. We're called to pray continually or without ceasing, right? 1 Thessalonians 5.17, short little text. Pray without ceasing. But oh, how often do we become soft in our prayer lives, Right? What do you oftentimes hear when you have a neighbor, or maybe even you are walking through a challenging set of circumstances? What are we often telling people around us? Hey, will you, will you pray for me? There's something about affliction. There's something about challenging circumstances. There's something about trials that push us to prayer, and that's a good thing. Prayer communicates how dependent we believe we are upon God. It communicates when, when, when our knees hit the ground in prayer, it communicates that God is the all-sufficient benefactor and we are the all-needy beneficiaries of his grace. God uses trials to teach us to pray. But God also uses trials to reveal our smallness, our weakness, and our frailty. God uses, God ordains trials in our lives to teach us that we're not really as big as we think we are. We're not really in as much control as we think we are. They remind us that we're not as strong as we thought we were. And so trials serve to keep us from thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. They remind us that God is the potter and we are the clay, right? God also uses trials in our lives to prepare us for an eternal weight of glory. Everything that happens in your and my life, God is using to prepare us in some way for the future revelation of glory. Paul tells us that in or told the Corinthians that when he said, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. I love those two words, light and momentary. Oftentimes we think our, our circumstances, we think uh, our trials are crushingly heavy. But Paul says they're light. And sometimes we think they're eternally long. How long, O oh Lord, do I have to continue to walk through this? But Paul says they're momentary. You know the difference between those two? views. When I have my eyes on myself and I have my eyes on my circumstances, they seem crushingly heavy, heavy and eternally long. But when I have my eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is sovereignly in control, all of a sudden those circumstances, those afflictions, those divinely appointed trials are put in their right context. They're light and they're momentary. God is using our trials to prepare us for an eternal weight of glory. God's also using our trials to allow us to share to a small degree in Christ's sufferings, to give us a glimpse of Christ's suffering on our behalf. 
Remember Paul prayed in Philippians chapter 3, that great chapter where he's distilling his testimony. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his what? Sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. God uses trials to allow us to share in Christ's sufferings. God also uses trials to humble us and to shake us of our propensity to look to ourselves as our own source of sufficiency. I don't know about you, but I struggle with that. I struggle at times looking at myself as my own source of sufficiency. We have a natural propensity to do, to do that. It's as a result of sin. But God uses trials to shake us of our propensity to look to ourselves as our own source of sufficiency. We all need to be humbled. We all need to be shaken of our self-confidence. It's good for us to be brought low before God. Reminds us how dependent we are upon Him. When we're humble and contrite, we're in the best position to learn from God and to be submissive to His will for our lives. When we're humble and contrite, isn't it the humble and contrite person that the Lord looks upon anyway? This is the man I esteem. He who is humble, contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. God uses trials to loosen our attachment to the things of this world. When you dig away the earth from the root of a tree, it's to loosen the tree from the earth. So God digs away our earthly comforts to loosen our hearts from the things of earth. God would have the world hang as a loose tooth, which being twitched away does not much trouble us. Is it not good to be weaned? Even the oldest saints need it. God uses trials to loosen our attachment to the things of this world. He also uses trials to arrest our attention and to awaken us from spiritual slumber. We all get spiritually lethargic and apathetic at times. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, he says, The most dangerous time for a Christian is when everything seems to be going well, without much change and without much incident. If we're not careful, we can easily slide into the ruts of life and become complacent. But trials have a way of startling us and awakening us. Jones concludes, he says, Is it not good to have the routine of life upset occasionally, no matter what the interruption may be? And then lastly, Again, this is not an exhaustive list. I wish we had hours and hours and hours where we could take breaks and come back and discuss these things, but God uses trials to draw us back when we wander away from Him. Remember Isaiah chapter 53? We all like sheep have gone astray. Well, here's the reality, and we sang about it this morning. Even redeemed sheep are prone to wonder. Even redeemed sheep are prone to wonder. And because God is a good shepherd, he graciously extends his shepherd's hook and he draws us back. Twice in Psalm 119, the psalmist acknowledged that God used affliction or God used trials to draw him back to himself and to grow him spiritually. You can go back and look at these verses later if you so desire, but Psalm 119, verse 67, the psalmist writes, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Just a few verses later in Verse 71, the psalmist says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Brothers and sisters, you need to know that the infinite love and wisdom of God is woven into each of your trials. In difficult circumstances are oftentimes where rubber meets the road theologically. This is where you learn what you really believe to be true about the nature, character, and attributes of God. When the trials of life come, we can sing great doctrine and great theology and we can have all kinds of verses memorized, which I highly commend. I highly commend. How can a young man keep his way pure? By hiding God's word in his heart. I highly commend those things. But when adversity comes, when trials come, when circumstances that are less than desirable from a finite perspective come, that's where the rubber meets the road theologically. That's where you really learn what you believe to be true about the nature, character, and attributes of God. Our theology is oftentimes forged in the fire of affliction, and God doesn't spare his children from the trials that are a result of living in a Genesis 3 world, but he does give us the incredible assurance that he is lovingly and wisely working all things for good. I'll never forget a dear lady in our church some years back lost her first husband. He passed away, and she began to write some poetry 
shortly after this time, and she gave me a, a poem that she had written uh, after her husband had passed away uh, that she had written in response to his death. And I want you to listen. Just I want to give you one line here, but listen to how God used this incredibly difficult set of circumstances to grow her in a deeper understanding of his love and his wisdom. This is what she penned. Higher than the heavens, your ways are not like mine, but your plans are always right on time. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. Who has ever understood that you're always up to something good? With an open heart and empty hands, letting go of all I know and what I don't understand, help me to see with eyes above. That's eyes looking outward, not inward. Help me to see with eyes above, trusting that what you give is sifted through your hands of love. Every single circumstance sifted through God's divine hand of love for you, for a purpose, because good implies purpose. And that purpose is that you might look more like the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you respond to trials? There's typically two ways that we respond. Either we recoil, we get angry and we get bitter at God for allowing difficult circumstances into our lives, or we humbly submit we humbly accept those circumstances from the hand of a loving and wise God. How do you typically respond? Peter encourages us in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. See, oftentimes when trials come into our lives, we think, what in the world is going on here? And Peter reminds us, hey, brothers and sisters, it's not a strange thing. It's not a strange thing. Good implies purpose. Don't forget that. It's not strange. God's up to something. And he's up to conforming you more and more into the image of his son. But something strange isn't happening to you, but rejoice. Here's the response. Insofar as you, and here's the phrase again, share in Christ's sufferings. Rejoice. That you may also rejoice and be glad at his, or when his glory is revealed. We're not to view trials as some sort of cosmic accident from a God who's just toying with us, detached from any purpose, in a way that leaves us in continual helplessness and despair. That's not the way that a Christian is meant to view trials. Let me give you a few examples of God-honoring responses to trials, and these will probably be familiar, but it's good to be reminded. Remember Joseph. Remember Joseph. One of the most familiar examples of God-honoring responses in trials Here's a young man who's hated by his brothers. He's thrown into a pit and left for dead. He's sold into slavery, accused of taking advantage of Potiphar's wife. He's thrown into prison. He's forgotten about by Pharaoh's butler when all hope seems lost, and it appears as though every circumstance in Joseph's life is working in every direction except for good. Joseph interprets a dream for Pharaoh, and Pharaoh rewards him by placing him second in command and giving him charge over all the food in the land, just as a seven-year famine is approaching. Threatened by the lack of food, Joseph's brothers, who tossed him in that pit, trek to Egypt and they find themselves unknowingly standing before Joseph himself, whom they tried to kill. How does the world respond to such a set of circumstances? The world would look at Joseph and say, Joseph, now's your chance, buddy. I mean, the ball's on the tee. Revenge, it's re you're ready, man. Now's your chance. Now's your chance to settle the score. That's the way the world says to respond to such a set of circumstances. But Joseph understood that in all that had happened to him, everything was in light of God's sovereign will. And so as he looked his brothers in the eyes, he said this. He says, as for you, you meant it for evil. But God, what? Meant it for good. God meant it for good. How about Job? How did Job respond to the trials of life? I mean, his livestock had been stolen. All of his servants had been slaughtered. All ten of his children were killed when the house they were eating and collapsed on top of them. In just the span of a few minutes, it seemed as though Job lost nearly everything he had. Can you imagine the heartache? All ten children, gone. Gone. Can you imagine the questions that must have rolled through his mind, and yet how did he respond? Job chapter 1, Job cries out. We sing this song, Naked I came, into, or came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's the right response to trials in our lives, by the way. Blessed be the name 
of the Lord. Recognizing God's sovereign rights that the Lord gave and the Lord takes away, Job praised the Lord. He followed adversity with adoration. There's some application for us. Do we follow adversity with adoration? Woe with worship. He didn't give in to bitterness. He refused to blame God for wrongdoing. Matter of fact, in chapter 2, his wife encouraged him, Job, why don't you just curse God and die? How did Job respond? He said, shall we receive good from God and not receive evil? Job says in some of the concluding chapters of the book that bears his name, he says, though he, God, slay me, yet I will hope in him. What words of encouragement in the midst of challenging circumstances? Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. How about Habakkuk? Let me just give you one verse as as an illustration or example here. Habakkuk writes this. He says, Though the fig tree does not bud, there are no grapes on the vines. Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food. Though there are no sheep in the the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet. Did you hear the word no, 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 no? And how does he respond? He says, and yet, and yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Well, let me ask you some questions. When was the last time that you thanked God for trials in your life? And we know that God causes, continually causing, all things to work together for good. Good implies intention, purpose. When was the last time you thanked God for trials in your life? We oftentimes thank God for the good, but we tend to doubt his goodness, and we tend to grow thankless in the midst of trials and adversity. I mentioned a minute ago, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Verses 16 and 17, just three short little snippets, which I would encourage you to memorize. You, you want a verse to memorize this week or a few verses? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. Super short little snippets. Rejoice always. That's verse 16. We can memorize that before we leave, right? Rejoice always. It's clear. Rejoice always. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. We can memorize that, right? Here's verse 18. Give thanks in some circumstances. Is that what it says? Give thanks in all circumstances. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you. Let me ask you this question. What if God's answer for your trials is this? My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. What if God's answer to your trials is my grace is sufficient for you? How will you respond? What if in God's wisdom he's determined not to turn down the trial, but to turn up his grace? If we understand that God's in control and that he's working all things for our good, then we can say with Job, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Let me say just a few important things here, a few important things to note. This is D on your outline. Good, that word there that implies purpose, good is not defined by how your circumstances make you feel. Good isn't defined by how your circumstances make you feel. It goes without saying that some of our trials can be incredibly challenging It's not easy to lose a child. It's not easy to sit next to your spouse at the doctor's office after the MRI and hear the word terminal or stage three or stage four. Those aren't easy things. It's not easy to endure persecution for your faith in Christ. It can be tempting at times to feel as if what God is doing in your life is everything but good. But remember that how you feel doesn't determine what good is. God determines what good is. And God's purpose, the purpose for that good right there is that you would look more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. What if God's answer is, my grace is sufficient for you? What if instead of turning down the trial, he says, I'm going to leave the trial up, and I'm just going to turn up my grace as well? Let me say this, E on your outline, God never acts punitively towards his children. God never acts punitively towards his children. That word punitively just means intended as punishment. Don't be mistaken, God disciplines his children when necessary. He does But he never, 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 capital N-E-V-E-R, never punishes his children. 
Every last drop of our punishment was poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, For it is discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline him? If you are left without discipline, in which you have all participated, then you are illegitimate sons. Besides this, we have all had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of our spirits and live? For they disciplined us, our fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best, but he, God, disciplines us, here's this word again, disciplines us for our good, the writer of Hebrews says. And then he defines good in the very next phrase. But he disciplines us for our good, and the way the text ends, that we may share in his holiness. Interpretation, that we might bear more resemblance to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is for our good. Let me say just a few brief things as we bring our time together in a, to a close here this morning. I want to say this. As sweet as this promise is, and we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him, as sweet as that promise is, it's conditional. It's conditional. It says to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Great promise. And then Paul adds a condition to those who are called according to his purpose, to those who love God. There's only two categories of people on this world, on this planet. There are those who hate God and those who love God. We're all born God-haters, right? Every single one of us were born dead in our sin with an insatiable love for self. But God has graciously called many of us out of darkness and out of death, and he's changed our hearts, not because we deserved it, but because it pleased him to do so. We were once all dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love for which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, has made us alive together in Christ. Is that true of you? Is that true of you? I pray that it is. I pray that it is. We need to know that as sweet as this promise is, that God uses all things to the good of those who love him, it is conditional. It is conditional. God rules over everything and everyone, both believers and unbelievers, but his oversight is very different. His care is very different in the case of believers. To them and only them does God's providence work for good. In other words, a non-believer cannot use this verse as a magic wand and just say, well, everything will work out good in the end. That's not, the, that's not what Paul intended, and it's definitely not what the original divine author God himself intended when he inspired the writing of this text. It's not to be used as a magic wand to give us some sort of false assurance that everything will just turn out fine in the end. It is a wonderful promise made yes and amen by the very spilled blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it is, it is conditional. It is conditional. Fourthly, and lastly on your outline this morning, God's ultimate purpose, and we've said this already, in your trials is to make you more like Christ. Look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Paul says, for those whom he foreknew. Foreknew simply means to forelove. When we speak about God foreknowing for us, we're saying that he knew us from eternity past and in his mercy and his grace, he has a sovereign delight in us. He has regarded us with a sovereign delight. To predestine means that God is sovereignly determined to work all things out in accordance with the counsel of his will. The theological significance of this is this, is that God is not, never has, can't, never will fly by the seat of his pants with you. Never. That's the theological significance. For those whom he foreknew, he also be predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. In everything God's doing in your life, the purpose is that you might bear more resemblance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, the theological significance of that is that God never flies by the seat of his pants with you. Never. Always working, continually working for your good. Intimately involved of every detail, not only the big picture, but of every moment of your life. I said earlier that God brings trials into our lives, and those trials come with great purpose. I hope you can see that this morning from our text, but it's also important that you see that those trials come with a great reward. 
The purpose is that we might bear more resemblance to the Lord Jesus Christ, but those trials also come with great reward. James tells us this in James chapter 1, verse 12. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast. There's that word again, steadfast, tempered, under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Here's what we must never forget, and I'll close with this thought. We must never forget that the cross comes before the crown. And everything that God is doing in your life, he's preparing you for the crown. Causing you to bear more and more resemblance to the Lord Jesus Christ. But even as we look to the Lord Jesus Christ, he didn't get the crown before the cross. He endured sin's heinous penalty and punishment on our behalf when he walked to a Roman cross, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, and laid his life down for his sheep. That is the very Lord Jesus Christ in which God the Father is causing us to bear more resemblance to. We have the great privilege this morning of celebrating that life. Jesus Christ was born, the Word became flesh, made his dwelling among us, was born into this world of a virgin, walked sinless, was tempted and tried in every way, yet without sin, walked to a Roman cross, bore sin's penalty in its full in its full measure. God poured out all of his wrath. Remember, there, God doesn't act punitively towards his children. Why? Because all of God's punitive anger, wrath, and justice was poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ for our, on our behalf and for our good. We had the privilege this morning of celebrating that as we partake in the Lord's table in communion. Communion is a time for examination. It's a time for reflection. It's also a time for repentance. God, you know me. Search, search my heart and know me. See if there is any unrighteousness in me. Communion is also a time for thankfulness. Remember, we are to pray without ceasing. We are to thank God in all circumstances. Communion is a time for worship and for adoration. And communion is a privilege that is reserved for believers and believers only. If you're a believer here this morning, we encourage you to celebrate with us, to participate with us in the Lord's uh, table as we remember just what he has done for us. Pray with me this morning, would you? Lord, we thank you so much for all that you're doing in and through us. We know that we live in a Genesis 3 fallen world, and even as your children, we are not exempt. You, you do not spare us from all of the trials and all of the adversities that are a result of living in a fallen world, but we do know that in all things you're working for the good of those who love you, and that good implies purpose. And the purpose of every trial, of every circumstance, of every divinely orchestrated set of events in our lives, that you are working to produce more of Jesus Christ's character in our lives. You're preparing us for eternity. You're preparing us for the day that we stand before you face to face and meet you. God, we pray this morning as we remember by way of communion Jesus Christ's death, his life, his death, and his glorious, victorious resurrection on our behalf, that you would encourage our souls to the heights. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.